There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucky, really, Lucy, because you've been abroad. You've been gadding about. (laughs) Abroad, you make it sound like, you know, I've been on my grand tour. Yes, I went off for a little quick break in between podcasts and nipped off to Iceland and have come back again. And it was brilliant. And I downloaded lots of wonderful things to read, including an Icelandic, a sort of compendium of short stories based in Reykjavik or about Reykjavik. And lots of lots of excellent things that I should have read. And I didn't read a word of any of them, actually. Well, that's the sign of a good break, I guess. But was it? I've never been and I've always wanted to go. Was it fantastic? It's wonderful. It's a wonderful place. It's like it's not like anywhere else. It's like going to the moon. And then, and then it's full of craters and and waterfalls, and we saw the geysir. So our word geyser, I mean not geyser like a Cockney geyser, you know, a geyser that sprouts water, is from the name of the biggest one in this particular area, which is called geysir. And he, they talked about him as a he. He only sort of shows himself when there's a major earthquake, of which there are quite a few actually. But he's got a little brother, and we saw a lot of activity from his little brother. And it's wonderful. And it's a very, very vibrant and sort of artistic place. Everyone there, I mean, half of the people are, uh, you know, if they have day jobs, they're also a musician or a poet or a novelist or an artist or, yeah, it's a very exciting and wonderful place. I have been there when it's been very dark and I've been there when it's been very light. And this was a mixture of the two, but it was about, I would say 15 to 20 degrees colder than here. Oh, quite chilly. And you are very, very good at languages. No, you're very kind. And my Icelandic, I mean, I did try. And by the end of the trip, I could say the name of the street we were on so that people could understand it. It's pretty difficult. It's one of those things, again, that are a bit like Swedish, I found. If you see it written down, you can make a bit more sense of it because mm. there's a bit of kind of Germanic-type stuff. But to hear it, it's challenging. That's what I would say. My Icelandic is non-existent, I'm embarrassed to say. Well, I'm sure it won't be if you go back again. Yes, yes, exactly. And I had read before when I went before have you read Independent People by Haldor Laxness I have not god it's amazing it's amazing he won the the Nobel I think yes it'd be mid-20th century and it's about a bunch of people having really quite a hard time in Iceland but it's wonderful highly recommended well thank you I will read it in fact because he is one of those omissions in my reading life and I've heard him much recommended I will read it I have been reading various bits and pieces this week of very very interesting books but really strangely you know the way themes emerge I've been reading Adam Sisman's new book The Secret Life of John le Carré Mm. which is a kind of addendum to his 2015 biography because after Le Carre's death and after the death of his wife, shortly after he died, it suddenly became more possible to write about Le Carre's private life, which was, we may say, slightly busy. 
and busier than than you might think for a man who was who was married for a long time. Um, he wasn't without other female companionship. And it's just very interesting because that's kind of what we're talking about on this week's podcast. We didn't put these two items together, but the patient wives of great men, we may say. <laughs> yes, that wasn't the theme that we originally thought of, but it has become one of them, hasn't it? It has. Well, on this week's show, Elizabeth Lowry joins us to talk about the late life love poetry of Thomas Hardy. And we hear from TLS science editor Samuel Graydon about what he calls his mosaic biography of Albert Einstein. But first, in November 1912, Thomas Hardy's wife Emma died suddenly at Max Gate, the Dorset house that the couple had lived in throughout the nearly 40 years they were married. They'd been unhappy together for a long time, and Emma had largely retreated to the house's attic rooms. But despite their estrangement, after her death, Hardy was moved to write a series of extraordinary love poems mourning her loss, continuing to add to them right up until his death. Mark Ford's new book, Woman Much Missed, explores this creative explosion. And Elizabeth Lowry, who has reviewed it in this week's TLS, joins us now. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I must say, to begin with, that you have written a novel, it's called The Chosen, about Emma Hardy. So this is very much reviewer, reviewee, perfect matchup. This is your specialist subject, isn't it? Yes, it was, you know, an absolute blessing to be able to review Mark Ford's book. When I was researching The Chosen, my novel, uh, back in 2019, 2020, no such book existed. His is the first, you know, sustained study of this, the so-called Emma poems, the poems, these remarkable elegies, these love poems that Hardy wrote to Emma after her death. Um, and to which, as you said, he added right up to the time of, of his own death. Um, but interestingly enough, peculiarly enough, uh, no one else had ever published a book-length study on, on this corpus of poetry. And when I was writing The Chosen, reviewing my novel about how he came to write these astonishing poems, you know, I had to sort of go from sort of study to study and, you know, read a chapter here, a chapter there and, and see... Um, you know, what people had written and, and discovered that there wasn't anything sustained. So this was absolutely blissful to discover rather late in the day, because, of course, I'd already published The Chosen, that someone had done this and so well, too. It's an absolutely first rate and excellent account of the writing of the poems. And what Mark Ford is particularly good at is, of course, close reading and it's a wonderful example of somebody putting the life together with the poetry and keeping the two in balance in the service of a, of a close reading of the poetry itself. Let us set the scene a little bit more about their marriage. They had met when Thomas was an architect's clerk who was working on a church restoration and she was the rector's sister-in-law. That was how they met many, many years prior to him being you know, the renowned Thomas Hardy, haven't they? Yes, that's right. Hardy, as I'm sure many of our, our listeners will know, came from the Dorset rural working class. So he, rather uniquely in his family, entered a profession. He, he was trained as an architect and he was trying to write poetry and fiction um, in 1870 when he was 29. His first novel, had been rejected by absolutely every publisher he'd sent it to. And he was trying to write a second one, which wasn't quite finished. And rather reluctantly, he agreed to take on a commission from his employer in, in Weymouth. And he left his family home, his, his parents' cottage in Hampton, and uh, went down to Cornwall to um, work on the restoration of St. Gillet Church near Boscastle. And he describes, you know, the journey he had to make in, in those days because the railway didn't didn't go there directly. He had to sort of go across two counties and then eventually hire a trap, a pony and trap, and cross Bodmin Moor, and then walk up to um, the rectory door of this of the, the door of this of this small, rather remote rectory. And the door was opened for him, 
um, not by the rector and not by the rector's wife, but by a young woman who was actually um, the rector's sister-in-law. And um, she was attractive and she was blushing and she was full of life and vitality as he remembered her. And this was Emma, this was his first glimpse of Emma. And one of the first things she noticed was that he had a little piece of blue paper sticking out of his shirt pocket because he was trying to write a poem on the train and he just used his bit of architect's paper, office paper, um, to scribble down this poem. And she said, oh, you know, what's that? You know, have you come with your plans? And he said, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm writing poetry. And before he knew it, he was engaged in this discussion with her where she had, you know, realised that he was a would-be writer. And over the next five days, um, their intimacy sort of grew and their shared love of literature and her sympathy for his ambitions, his writing ambitions, certainly played, as, as Mark Ford points out, you know, an enormously important role in their unfolding courtship. There's a poem as well, isn't there, you photos There's a poem called She Opened the Door. She Opened the Door, exactly, where he remembers this moment. I mean, in fact, you know, probably it wasn't Emma who opened the door. It could have been made for all we oh, know. don't say that. <laughs> if it was Emma. <laughs> Love at first sight. <laughs> Imagine that it was Emma, <laughs> that she was at least there, you know. So, yes, he remembered this moment and he remembered it as, you know, a focal point in his own formation as a writer, um, you know, in the sort of, you know, Bildungsroman of Thomas Hardy's own life. This is the crucial moment. She opened the door, as he said, she opened the door of the West to me, she says in this poem. So she introduced him to Cornwall, which became in his own imagination, you know, this intensely romantic setting. This is the story of Arthur and Camelot, Tintagel Castle, the ruins of Tintagel weren't very far away, of Tristan and Isolde, as he later, he later compared himself and Emma to these, you know, mythical lovers. Um, so she opened a, a whole new landscape to him, but she also opened the door to him as a poet, as a writer. She was the first person he'd met who was actively sympathetic to this very strong desire he had to write. His own family was not very keen on the idea of him giving up a sensible paying job to become, you know, a poet or a novelist. And so she was this hugely sympathetic and empowering um, presence in his life. Um, and then, as he says in the same poem, she opened the door of romance to me as well, because he fell in love with her in the five days that he spent in Boscastle in St Gillet. And this poem, She Opened the Door, ends, you know, finally where he says, and she opens the door of the past to me. And this poem, we realise at that point, has been written after her death. And of course, it's her death that prompts the outpouring of And I mean, she was his copyist for a long time, wasn't she? She, you know, made the fair copies of his handwritten manuscripts. But she had been, in a sense, rather supplanted romantically and, I suppose, logistically, practically. And they were not happy. He had a, well, the woman who became his second wife, Florence Dugdale, but they had become terribly unhappy, hadn't they? And obviously it's impossible really to know exactly why and what happens within a marriage. But what is your sense of what happened? I mean, it's partly what you try to imagine, isn't it, in your novel? Absolutely. This is the mystery of what happened. You know, I mean, I called my book The Chosen, which is, again, taken from one of Hardy's own poems with that title, where he imagines himself rather interestingly in, in this poem, or a figure who's rather like him, pursuing a woman who, who realises that she isn't his first love and that he's had many other loves before. And he explains, we tries to explain that he has chosen her above all others. And the question that I wanted to, why did he marry? Why did he choose Emma Gifford? And what happened? Um, you know, what happened to sour this very promising um, relationship, which began so well, because by the end of of her life, you know, they were living separate lives in Maxgate. He was emotionally entangled with Florence Dugdale, who was much, much younger, nearly 40 years younger than he was. She was a fan of his work. She'd written a fan letter. He sometimes used her help unofficially as an assistant. 
Um, and she did supplant Emma emotionally, he, as he thought, you know, towards the end of, of Emma's life. I think what happened, I think that there were a number of factors at play in the, the sort of downward trajectory of, of the Hardy's marriage. I think one of one of the elements was certainly the reality, the rather sort of brutal reality of, of the writing life and, and life with a writer. I think as Hardy's fame overtook him and Emma, I think she found the writing life harder and harder to stomach, you know, living with somebody who was dedicated to a relentless writing regime who didn't make time for her. I think she was rather neglected and rather sidelined. And the fact that they didn't have children, I think also played perhaps its part in the deterioration of their relationship because she was rather lonely. And I think he um, he was naturally introspective and perhaps somebody who, you know, who found it easier to relate to women in imagination than in, than in reality too. I mean, he writes about women so wonderfully in his novels, he understands them, he animates them, but in The Chosen, certainly, I, you know, I try and suggest ways in which perhaps he finds relating to women on paper in his versions of the women he knows or, or creates, finds that easier than perhaps relating to, to real flesh and blood women. Um, so I think it was a complex, it was a complex situation, but certainly Emma's death came as a tremendous surprise to him. No one expected her to die when she did in November 1912. And what was an even more horrible um, surprise was that a few days after her death, when he was going through her effects in her little attic boudoir, as she called it, um, he discovered two manuscripts which she'd left behind. And the first of these was a rather lovely memoir, which uh, recalled her youth and, in fact, how they met. And she describes that first meeting and her opening of the door to him in great detail in this memoir. And she called that Some Recollections. And you can read that. I mean, that's been published since by Robert Gittings. It was published in 1961 under the title she gave it. Um, but the second manuscript was a set of secret diaries, which Emma had apparently been keeping for about two decades. And um, these were titled What I Think of My Husband. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> what a brilliant title. <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to find that in their partner's effects do especially they? not the husband honest. the husband who has been living one floor down from her from the last how absolutely. many years and not paying her any attention at all absolutely and and you know apparently we, we, we know how distressed he was to find these because Florence Dugdale this young you know girlfriend of his the the young woman um with whom he was emotionally involved um records his distress in two letters which survive um to a mutual friend where she describes how upset he was at the contents of what she calls these diabolical diaries but we don't actually know what was in them because he burned them a few months after he found them he read them many many times he clearly took their contents to heart but he did destroy them. So when I came to write Chosen, um, I had to reconstruct their contents. That was one of the main challenges for me of writing novel, of writing about these events. And I had to try and trace the decline of that relationship and what Emma's grievances might have been. Um, but it's a tremendous story. I mean, the story has all the elements of one of Hardy's own novels, if you think about it, you know, a marital misunderstanding, fateful revelation, and then this ironic twist in this case his discovery that while he was you know the, the discovery by the famous writer that while he was spending all those hours writing Emma had been a writer too <laughs> she she hadn't been mincing her words at all so you know it was a very it was a, a sort of an irresistible sort of dramatic donne sort of setup yes yes um, I can and in fact you you have a scene don't you in The Chosen where very shortly after her death, he finds a little bit, just a scrap of, of a poem, and he thinks to himself, she never could write poetry. So he evidently was pretty dismissive of, well, of her, but also of her, her mind, her work, her creativity. Oh, absolutely. He was utterly dismissive of it. And But, you know, one has to sort of be, I think, fairly hard-headed about this. If you look at her poetry... Uh, the poetry I quote in The Chosen actually is a, a scrap of, of a poem that she did write. She was not a particularly gifted poet. No, no, it wasn't very good. No. Well, no. <laughs> some, it's terribly tried, but Some Recollections is 
a remarkably fresh, living, breathing piece of writing, uh, as he himself saw immediately. In fact, he was so impressed by it that he included large excerpts from it in the autobiography, the biography, which he ghost wrote, and which was published after his death under the name of Florence Dugdale, who would become his second wife. So he included excerpts from some recollections in his own, you know, ghost-written auto slash biography, um, long before Gittings published it. You know, it sounds very much as Emma must have sounded. I can imagine her sort of just sitting down and writing without really thinking too much about what she was putting down. So her syntax is rather breathless and her spelling is a little erratic and her handwriting is certainly, you know, you know, quite choppy. But it gives us a wonderful sense of her and her enthusiasm for life and her vitality. And you can see why he fell so hard for her. Um, and of course, it, it also foregrounds the tragedy that they lost each other, you know, emotionally later, later on in life. And she'd written this memoir um, by 1911, so the year before her death, and she was still remembering the past. So in spite of the fact that she was keeping those rather vicious diaries, she was also giving the past its due. And his importance in her life was something that she acknowledged. She never lost sight of that. It's interesting, in some recollections, there's a passage um, which I quote in its original form, where she records their meeting, and then she, she sort of rounds, rounds it all up by saying, and so I met my husband, or rather, he met me. And, <laughs> and when Hardy came to edit that passage and include it in his own autobiography slash biography, he crossed out that last line <laughs> so that the... The emphasis falls very squarely on her meeting of her husband, you know, so even then he couldn't sort of resist the sort of editorial intervention, you know, of giving what he saw as the correct emphasis to her story. But so, yes, he was rather dismissive of her writing, especially her poetry, although he did value some recollections. He is then the sort of keeper of her voice. Well, as you say, he was doing that the whole way through, but especially, of course, after she died. He yeah. edits and constructs and fashions. I mean, it's not a sort of character judgment contest, is it? But he's not easy on himself in the love poems to her. He doesn't make himself seem seem wonderful. It seems like he has behaved badly, but it's, it's still his version of her voice, of course. Yes. What's remarkable about the poems, um, these poems, he, he wrote 18 or so originally, um, and they were published in a sort of, you know, end section to the volume Satires of Circumstance, which came out in, in uh, 1914. So the poems of 1912 to 13 were sort of, you know, included at, at the end, and there were 18 of them, and he kept adding to them until there were about 100 by the time of his death. But what's remarkable about them is that he doesn't just write about Emma, but he writes as Emma very often. And sometimes you can hear him responding, replying to what must have been an accusation or a remark that she must have made in those diaries which he'd read. Sometimes he's in dialogue, writing in dialogue with some recollections with her memoir. And he's trying to inhabit her, her consciousness sometimes imaginatively in his imagination and to try and tell their relationship from her point of view, which is, I think, a marvellous feat of sort of self-effacement, and it works very well. At other times, he's writing as her ghost, come back to Max Gate, you know, wanting to say something to the widower she, she sees grieving for her, but unable to, uh, you know, noting the small changes in the building later. That he even writes about her response to her second wife, to, to Florence, the ghost's supposed response. So he inhabits every sort of nook and cranny that he possibly can in, in trying to recreate Emma, in, in trying to bring her back to life, to conjure her. And one of these poems, he calls this a strange necromancy. These are necromantic poetics, as Mark Ford so wonderfully says, where he's trying to speak to the dead. He's trying to enter into a dialogue with the dead and to participate in the afterlife of the dead, it's more than just poetry. It's an attempt to have a relationship still, mm. somebody who is no longer alive. And this is what makes them so astonishing. I can't think of any other writer who does this, who gives us the portrait of a relationship um, across a lifetime, across, you know, 40 plus years, all the way from first meeting, you know, to falling in love you know, marriage and then division, as he calls it in one poem, and quarrel and bitterness and alienation and then death, which isn't the end of the story, because then we get remorse and looking back and then the rebirth of love. Because one of the things he realizes that is that he, in fact, 
does to love his wife. He's in love with the ghost. And he acknowledges this whole spectrum of emotions. So it's a very, very challenging set of poems to read because they sort of run, you know, they run the, the, the gamut of all the emotions, of all the possible angles. And they also do it with great metrical daring. He doesn't sort of keep to a form. He's not somebody who's writing just in the sonnet form, for example. You know, he's not Elizabeth Barrett Browning. He's not Shakespeare. He's, he's trying to do something quite new from poem to poem. And, and very often they're jarring. They have these reversals of, of meter, of rhythm, sort of mid-poem. And he's always harnessing the meter in, you know, in the service of whatever effect it is he's trying to create, which is often an uncomfortable effect. Um, so they really are very modern poems, too, in the way they sound and feel. It sounds, too, as though, and one would expect this from a writer like Mark Ford, who is so intimately aware of the construction and the power of poetry, that he did treat the poetry as very, very important. It's central to this book, which I know you you were enormously impressed by. But, you know, we focused on the life a little because it is so, so intriguing. But this is, I mean, did it breathe a kind of fresh life to the poetry for you? Yes, completely. And what I personally loved was the fact that, you know, I was reading this book, of course, to see what Mark Ford has to say about about these marvellous poems, which I know, but I also wanted to see if my own intuitions or my own conclusions, if you like, in The Chosen, you know, st stand up. <laughs> and I was, I was very pleased to feel, having read Mark's, you know, wonderful study, that perhaps I had managed to identify the main strands or the main themes or, or reach the right conclusions, if you like. But, but he's particularly good at tracing the importance of poetry in Hardy's life, in Hardy's own self-conception. Um, Hardy wanted to be a poet, not a novelist, but you can't make a living as a poet, you know, you still can't, and you certainly couldn't if you were the you know, the sort of son of a mason in, in, in the 19th century. You had to somehow make money out of your writing and the novel was the way to do it. But in fact, Hardy stopped writing um, fiction after 1895 and focused entirely on poetry and, and had a, a second career as a poet only. And Mark Ford acknowledges that, you know, the central importance of poetry to Hardy's identity and also the role that it played, that a shared love of poetry played in his budding relationship with Emma and in his attempt to process that relationship then once Emma had died. And his readings of the poetry are remarkable. You know, he takes us through the journey that Hardy himself takes us, takes us on, you know, describing their meeting, describing the relationship and what goes on with, with great tact, I think. You know, um, one of the enormous strengths of this book is that it, it only judges the poetry. It doesn't judge the three protagonists involved. It doesn't pass a comment on... Florence Dugdale on Hardy's relationship with her, um, although it's hugely sympathetic at the same time to the, the suffering that all three must have felt at various stages um, of this triangle. Um, and there are hints that Emma was aware by the end of her life of the fact that, that Hardy's affections had strayed to Florence. So it's all beautifully handled. And also, finally, the you know, the, the final paradox of this tragedy, um, which is that Emma seemed more alive to Hardy as a ghost in memory, as Mark Ford says, than when they lived together. You know, that's perhaps the final tragedy, that he was unable to say any of these things that he says in the poems to Emma while she was alive, while she was living. He, I think, published one poem about her, you know, called Ditty, a Ditty, which, which you know, didn't really sort of go, go very far. So there are sort of multiple layers of suffering and tragedy and regret in the poetry and in the story. And inevitably, you have to read the two together. Um, and his reading is is outstanding. It's it's exemplary. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's such an interesting story. And we haven't even touched on how awful it must have been afterwards to be Florence Dugdale. Yes, that's another story. I <laughs> sort of think, you know, this comes into your novel, which, by the way, I just immensely enjoyed. And I, I partly enjoyed it because it was so vivid on the kind of daily life. And I mean, that the attic rooms you conjure so, so fantastically and this, this sort of rather stultifying atmosphere of this house that he had built for them to be married in. And it's very beautiful. I've gone down many a rabbit hole of looking at pictures of the house. But and also his, you know, his family, his sister Kate is a really vivid 
presence in your novel, which I must say is probably why it's shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize. And we give you many congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for talking to us today about this book. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Still to come on the show, Atoms, Particles and a Miraculous Year, Samuel Graydon on Albert Einstein. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, we all think we know a bit about Einstein. He did the theory of relativity, he smoked a pipe, he changed the course of physics and history along the way. But what do we really know about his life or his work? A new book by the TLS's science editor, Sam Graydon, called Einstein in Time and Space, A Life in 99 Particles, aims to tell us a lot more. And happily, we've got Sam Graydon to come and talk to us about it. Sam, many thanks for joining us for a brief chat to unravel the mysteries of time and space. <laughs> Not at all, you know, you need how no 10 pressure. minutes, 20 minutes, something like that, yeah. <laughs> Should we just say, Lucy, to our listeners, that we're incredibly grateful to Sam for coming and joining us, particularly because in this piece about cutting-edge science we essentially were bedeviled by such technical gremlins that I was holding up handwritten signs to Sam through the ether saying, I don't know, I'm just going to try turning it off and turning it on again. We could say that you've undercut our um, our magical aura of technical prowess. There. Yeah, but... usually it's fine. It wasn't today. I think it must be it must be Einstein's ghost. That's what I think. He's trying to talk to us through mm -hmm. the waves. Sam, can you tell us about the subtitle? Why is it a life in 99 particles? Thank you, Lucy. That's, that's actually a really lovely question because it kind of, yeah, cuts to the heart of my thinking behind the book. And uh, <laughs> it allows me to quote Virginia Woolf, which, you know, I'm always, always keen, good. keen to do. There's a very nice analogy she makes in Orlando. And she says, these selves of which we are built up one on top of another um, as plates are piled on a waiter's hand, is her description of, of selfhood, of the fact that we are kind of, uh, all of these selves, there isn't one self, we are many, multitudinous. And then she goes on in the same passage to say, a biography is considered complete if you know it covers six or seven selves, when actually there might be as many thousands in a person. And she says it all very nicely. And that stuck with me when I read that book. And I been interested in that idea of kind of a multiple selfhood for a while and when I started to read about Einstein I 
noticed how he he reminded me of this version of Selfhood. There was something in him, and perhaps it's fame acting against his life, but there was something in him in the actions of his life that were conflicting and contradictory and multifariousness, the multifariousness to his kind of lived life that I wanted to try to tease out. So that was kind of the thinking um, behind structuring it in these particles, as I, you know, slightly uh, kind of punningly call them. <laughs> but it, it was a, a deliberate choice of words um, because, of course, we are made up of particles ourselves and particles are discrete. They are individual little things. And together, when they are all put together, they make a cohesive whole. And I also call the book a mosaic biography, and that's the same idea, the idea that you have these individual pieces which put together make a still true picture. So that was the, the thinking behind that. Mm. Would it be true to say, and I think it's probably clear that I'm no physicist, that all these things that come together to make a cohesive whole are also dynamic, they're shifting constantly, so the mosaic that you've made is not a sort of static mosaic. It's not a finished mosaic. It changes all the time, depending on how you're looking at it. And also Einstein changes enormously over the course of his life and his his work. I think there is definitely something to that, particularly, I think, the, the first part of it. It changes on how you're looking at him. And, and that is, I guess, a wider point to how we view people, historic people. and. There is also, there's also something to the second part of it, that Einstein does change throughout his life. But I guess I was also trying to, to draw on the fact that there, I didn't want to present a narrative exactly. I was reading many biographies of Einstein, and part of the nature of the form of biography is that you have to impose some degree of narrative on it just to make it interesting. It's just too boring to read 700 pages of kind of facts about someone. There has to be a drive behind it. But the problem is, of course, well, to some extent at least, um, we don't really live a kind of linear narrative experience. People aren't particularly like that. And so there is a, you can draw a linear kind of uh, shape to Einstein's life saying that he changed uh, his opinions over various years. But at the same time, I wanted to show how Within the same year, he did one thing and did another thing that put together seem very contradictory, but both are a kind of valid representation of him at that point in time and a valid interpretation of him as a character as a whole. So that, again, was part of the, the reasoning behind it. Uh, an example is that, that is pervasive throughout his life, so this isn't something that changes, is that he is universally loved by pretty much everybody. And that's strangers, uh, you know, close friends, colleagues, basically everybody loves Einstein, except his family, because he was probably the best friend you could ever have, but he was a pretty terrible father, and he was most assuredly a terrible husband. And those things don't change. And so there's a point in the book where I... One of the chapters, one of these particles, I quote Bertram Russell, an aged Bertram Russell. He's it's in the 60s, I think, and everybody's died except Russell. Um, so he's as mean as he can possibly be about everybody, effectively. Yeah. He says that you know Lenin was less impressive than I thought him to be, and D. H. Lawrence was a fascist, and Eisenhower was a silly man, and you know Tennyson was a fraud, and on and on these kind of insults go. But he gets to Einstein and then has a whole a kind of almost paragraph worth of, of speech. It's a recorded interview saying that Einstein was the most perfect great man he ever knew. And he was sort of wholly good. He wouldn't have wished him changed in any way. He was sort of affable, lovely. He just was like brilliant. And kind of at the end of all of this sort of diatribe against effectively every famous person in you know the first half of the 20th century it is remarkable to come across that and that is very reflective of how people how everybody who met Einstein felt about him so that's one particle that I do 
And in the following particle, I then quote from a letter that Einstein sent to his first wife as they were separating. And they were separating in about 1914. Um, their marriage had was gone cold by that point, in part because Einstein was having an affair. He's had other affairs during it, but this affair was known about. By this point, his first wife was also having an affair. You know, it's gone very sour. It was very acrimonious, kind of. And so, but they had two children, and his first wife wanted to kind of stay together for their sons. And Einstein writes this letter to her, outlining the conditions of which he will return to live with Mileva, his, his wife. Um, and with no preamble at all, there's not, there's not a, you know, even a dear neighbor. It just goes into a list that's categorized one, one A, one B, one C, and then goes through these points. And it says things like, you know, if I request it, you will stop talking to me. You will cook my meals and serve them to me in my room. You will not sit with me uh, after dinner. And, you know, it goes on like that. You'll do my laundry. And so I put them together, effectively. I juxtapose them at least to show that both of those things are true. Mm. And both of, both of those things are a, a reasonable way of meeting the man. And one doesn't cancel out the other, um, I think, was the idea. We do seem to be, Lucy, we've been talking about Thomas Hardy earlier in the podcast. I mean, we seem to be really focusing accidental juxtaposition, I should say, on the difficulty that great men apparently have at home. Yes, it's extraordinary. And that, well, I suppose the point that we were saying with Hardy was that Hardy found it difficult to, seem to find it difficult to have a relationship with a real woman, whereas he could have a relationship with a ghost or a kind of idea mm, of a woman. Mm. And it sounds as though Einstein, well, had difficulty having relationships because you say his second marriage failed as well but was in fact fantastically successful in almost all his other relationships which is such an interesting so you put those two together and they kind of they sort of illuminate each other as well that's is that the idea that's the idea um although I think it's slightly more interesting than that because his second marriage doesn't fail but it doesn't fail because he outright says to his second wife that he doesn't believe in monogamy and then just carries on having loads of affairs that she then knows about you know, I right. tell one story of one of his mistresses coming and bringing his second wife Elsa pastry every time she arrived. And she was very aware of it. I think part of what Einstein struggled with, or actually a lot of what Einstein struggled with, was authority, effectively. A constraint. There's a good anecdote when he talks to, I think, C.P. Snow, and he complains of Zwang, which is a German, excellent German word, which uh, means constraint, constraint of any kind political kind of personal uh you know any force that constrains you um and he does not want any zwang and that's what no i mean says. nobody wants any zwang do they this is the and I mean, this is zwang as in i'm i'm guessing here again no physicist no german speaker either but as in zugzwang the chess move where nobody the chess position where nobody can move it's that sort of thing. It's it's being completely hampered. Yeah, I imagine that is probably... I'm not a brilliant German speaker myself. So there was a lot of translation involved in this. <laughs> I think Zug is together. So does Zug Swang mean you are both hampered? Yes, I think so. Yes, nobody can move on, on the chessboard. And that is a nice kind of physical idea of what Einstein's trying to describe. But I think that well, you say nobody wants swine, but for Einstein, a conventional relationship is swine. The idea mm -hmm. that you have obligations to other people, not not because you want to, but because you have to. Again, he's a, a lovely friend. He really is a completely doggedly loyal, really lovely friend. He handles, again, any other type of relationship with kind of perfect ease you know, far more reason I expected of him when I first started writing it, because you imagine him as this slightly incompetent, slightly mad genius, you know, that sort of archetypal figure of a genius who can't quite exist in the real world. And that isn't really what he's like. He has no trouble making friends, no trouble keeping them, no trouble navigating the kind of the complexities of those emotional relationships. But the point is, 
that that's of his own choice. Mm. Yeah. Whereas as soon as you get married, you are obliged to do various things. And it sort of state sanctifies it. And Einstein hated any kind of state. Might I then briefly suggest, in I hope not too judgmental a way, that he would have been better off not getting married? Indeed. Uh, not judgmental at all. He told his second wife the same thing. What a lovely thing to hear over the breakfast table. Indeed. He was very <laughs> reluctant to get married again. But I think understandably for the time, his second wife was quite keen on getting married. There are a lot of obviously advantages to it, but social advantages as well as kind of economic advantages. So she was very keen on getting married and had to take him as he was, as he sort of made clear. And as she wrote to various friends, she said, there is so much good in him, but sometimes, you know, you kind of have to lump it, effectively. That's <laughs> not a direct quote, obviously. <laughs> We don't know how to say you have to lump it in German, but if anybody would like to write in and tell us, we would be fascinated to know. So I was going to ask you about the the Einstein that you expected, because there is an Einstein of popular imagination, the sort of cuddly, wacky professor, almost the original wacky professor. But so you're saying he, the Einstein of legend and of kind of, you know, car bumper stickers, that wasn't like the Einstein you encountered? Not wholly. There is a reason that that, figure emerges a bit like how Hemingway sort of lives up to a version of himself by the time he's a grand old man you know Einstein sort of does that there there is truth to his sort of absent-mindedness um it's just nowhere near as pronounced as you would expect he grows into a kind of stereotype of himself effectively but not necessarily in of himself you know, people put the stereotype onto him during his life. That is the one of the remarkable things about writing about him. And the reason that I can say he, for example, was so universally loved is because he was so famous. He was as famous as it is possible to be during your lifetime. And so everybody wrote everything that he said down, <laughs> you know, as, as soon as they met him. And part of being that famous, of course, is that people then effectively start making things up about you. And so that image of the absent-minded professor, I have a chapter about that, where the sort of inhabitants of Princeton come up with all of these tales about Einstein. You know, there's one where they say, or somebody says that Einstein would go into Princeton Library and take a random book off of a random shelf and open it to a random page and look at the first sentence of a random paragraph, read it, shut the book, put it back, and contemplate that sentence for three months, which obviously is just rubbish. <laughs> it's just not true. But at the same time, in that article, in that chapter that I, I do, I throw in a few true ones to show how kind of they're speaking to each other, effectively, these, these falsities and these truths. And the true one, which I like in particular, is that uh, Einstein phones up the... Uh, college that he's working at the institute of advanced study tries to get hold of the dean and gets their secretary and says oh could i could i just have einstein's address please and they say oh i'm afraid you know so we can't give out that information that's sensitive and we can't do that and then he goes oh please please don't tell anybody but it is professor einstein and i've forgotten where i live you know there is the absent-minded man he is constantly losing his keys from you know teenagehood up which is rather annoying to most people I think after he gets married he forgets his keys so they can't actually go home after the wedding there is a truth to it all but it gets kind of massively amplified by the kind of public uh, image of him which actually takes on the kind of aspects that we're quite familiar with now so that image has persisted but it, it is there in his lifetime mm. So within these 99 particles, and I must ask you why there are 99 in a minute, but before I ask you about that bit, did you find a way into understanding about his miraculous year, which is quite early, really, in his life, 1905, when he's working as a clerk, isn't he? Yeah. In which he he really did, I mean, it's difficult to overstate it, isn't it? He really did open up new possibilities that are still being discovered and explored and that have huge ramifications for everyone. Yes. It's part of the reason I wanted to write the book was that every physics book, every popular physics book that I 
read and always referenced Einstein as the foundational figure for that subject of physics in the 20th century. He was always the progenitor. He was always the archetype. And he was always mentioned with reverence, like scientific reverence. No matter what it was, if it was quantum mechanics or cosmology, which, you know, is as small as you can get and as big as you can get, whatever it was, he's always a really important um, figure. And so I, I thought I'd best know more about him. And so that was part of the reason that I started to get interested in him and read about him was the, the sheer importance of his work. And a lot of that work, as you say, comes from this period, this miraculous year in 1905 which really is miraculous. It's miraculous on two fronts, the, the personal level and the, and the physics of it. So the personal level is miraculous because he is, I believe, 26 at that point. He is working, as you say, as a, as a patent clerk, a day job, effectively, and he's been there for ages. He has he's fallen out of anything to do with academia. He, he graduates and nobody gives him a job. And so he has to work as a clerk. He works there six days a week, on his day off, Sunday, the library is closed, so he can't read anything. <laughs> can't take any things out from the library because he's working or it's closed. He has a one-year-old child at home, and he writes five papers that year, all in his spare time. He also writes 22 reviews, I think, and he does something else, which I suddenly forget. It's a monumental kind of amount of effort just sort of pours out of him. In a way, even if the theories hadn't been any good, and spoiler, they really were. That's still an enormous amount of work and concentration. And it turns out they changed everything. This idea of somebody doing such immense work so early in their career, so early in their adult life, always begs the question, you know, how do they contemplate the rest of their career? What are they going to do after that? Was that something that afflicted Einstein? This kind of, well, you know, what now? Yes, it is. And um... It's not a traditional uh, view of him that he was sort of racked with, as it were, ambition, even if it were a kind of personal uh, ambition against your own history. He's seen as quite an easygoing person. And I think in general he is, but he definitely kind of bears in mind his previous successes and thinks about where he's going. You know, there's, uh, there's an anecdote about him with one of his students and they, they walk to a class together and, he writes down the conversation that they have and he is just fretting. He's fretting over what he's meant to do now because at that point he's just done general relativity or a few years ago. And he just, he feels like he's dried up and he has no kind of direction. So it's very, you know, he, that's a very common, actually quite human response to it. But yes, yeah, so when he does the miracle year, special relativity and, and quantum mechanics and et cetera, he then spends about 10 years uh, working on general relativity, which, along with quantum mechanics, is probably the most important theory in physics of the last 100 or so years. And that is a kind of uh, theory of the workings of space. That takes him a good deal of effort. That doesn't really seem to come from nowhere. That is a very hard-won battle. And then he publishes that in 1915, and there's a rather it's actually quite nail-biting by the end he spent so long on it and then he shows his working in 1915 a few months before he's kind of wrapping everything up to a very 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 good mathematician called David Hilbert who thinks oh, that's really interesting and I'll just work on that for a little bit and then Hilbert sends him his workings on it and he's sort of outpacing Einstein in his combination of Einstein's theory and so there's a little race effectively between them and Einstein sort of just about beats him but it's a surprisingly nail-biting thing for something that's taking him 10 years but so he does general relativity and that is what makes him famous general relativity is proven in 1990 so four years after it's published and that is what makes him worldwide famous right okay so it's not until 15 years after what, what in fact was the miraculous year that the whole world goes, who's this? Yes. The miraculous year, it takes a very long time, even after that, for him to be recognised at all. And there's a, it, he stays as a patent clerk 
people are writing to him, but writing to the University of Bern rather than the patent office because they think that he's an academic, but he's still not. When someone says, oh, history is full of bad jokes to him because they can't believe he's not an academic. It takes him several years after that still to get an academic position. He has ways of giving up on applying for an academic position. There's one point where he applies to be a high school teacher of math and this is after the, the miracle year this is a few years i think it's two years after the miracle year he applies to be a high school teacher and sort of you know says oh i can do physics as well because it's for math <laughs> teach physics lessons as I well i do a spot of physics on the side exactly there are 21 applicants and he doesn't make the final three is that also because as you said they were so radical and they were so revolutionary that everyone just kind of went but well, i can't really i can't really handle this and they had to kind of think about it for a long time or rather it seemed so outlandish that it took a while for people to say no actually there was something in it i think that it's the first of those two they people had to scratch their heads for a while to figure it out but also it was the fact that he was operating outside of academia as i say max Planck is a very quick kind of friend and benefactor to einstein and he spreads a bit of the word that there's this bloke in Bern who you know has done some good work and Without Planck, it probably would have taken him much, much longer because he starts corresponding with uh, physicists around Europe. You know, while he's applying to be a high school teacher, he's corresponding to the great and the good of the physics community on these subjects. But he sort of has worked outside of the academic community. They have no place for him, really. And he was also just a terrible, terrible student. And so any of the <laughs> any of his old teachers who remember him just really got terrible references. Yes, he's got terrible references. He was an awful student. I hope for all non-high-achieving students, yeah. Um, Sam, we could talk about this for hours, and I wish we could, actually, but we will have to stop at some point. But just before we let you go, I need to ask you about the 99. Oh, yes, yes. There's obviously some wider thought to it. I thought that, you know, 100 was slightly too uh, traditional for Einstein, as we've sort of been discussing He thinks outside, as it was, thinks outside the box, to use that phrase a bit, but he's slightly rebellious. 99 seems slightly more fitting to that, but I kind of settled on it um, after finding out that there is an element named after Einstein, uh, which is Einsteinium, E-S, and it's element 99. And the reason why that story of Einsteinium had quite a lot, which encapsulates quite a lot of the um, kind of ambiguity of Einstein, which is, again, what I have been trying to do with the book, because Einsteinium was discovered in the aftermath of a hydrogen bomb explosion. They flew drone through the aftermath of the, the bomb and sort of with filter paper attached to them and collected some of the residue. And they also collected burnt coral, you know, completely destroyed coral fragments because it was out in one of these sort of uninhabited atolls that's where they yeah one of the atolls yeah exactly and testing those they discovered the kind of heat and pressure and energy of the hydrogen bomb had created another element with einsteinium as it then came to be called and the reason it was named that was because einstein had recently died and it was sort of seen as an honorific although it was quite unusual at the time marie curie had had won element named after her but she was the only person at that point to have had an element named after her so it was quite rare to name it after a person so that in itself shows how famous and how respected Einstein was at the time and also and I don't think I'm reading into this they did it because Einstein was even then seen as connected to the bomb he was seen as a, as kind of yeah the father of the nuclear bomb and I, I use that term because at one point I think in 1947 I think Einstein goes so far as to write down that he says, I am not the father of the nuclear bomb. So that is clearly an idea that is around. I wish I could get into why. But the idea that it's named after him allowed me to then talk about why it is that people think that this is sort of an apt honorific and Einsteinium, the nuclear bomb. And then why, in fact, I don't think it's too far to say that he would be appalled that this was the reason it was named after him. So I use that to talk about his, as it were, kind of truer views about nuclear weaponry. But that in itself is 
itself is a fascinating story and I guess people will have to buy the book to find it out <laughs> otherwise I'd tell you it's a fascinating story well, listen, thank you so much. It is all completely fascinating. And I have to say that I know that we're all, some of us, I mean, I'm counting me here, a bit challenged in the old science department, but the way that you talk about it, not least in that you talk about, you know, Virginia Woolf and Ernest Hemingway is beautifully clear so that so that we can at least feel, can't we, Alex, that we have a grasp of this? Oh, yes, I feel I'm virtually, I've got it sorted now. Splendid. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> no, but seriously, I I always think humanizing people and I, you know, is always somehow an immense help to understanding something of what they were about in the parts of their work that you don't feel you've got a hope in understanding if you're, for example, me. So thank you very much. Not at all. That's a pleasure, really. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. And your book's out this week. There's a review in the paper this week. It's it's all happening this week. Indeed it is, yeah. It's out on Thursday. Terrific. Thank you so much, Sam. No, thank you. Thank you very much. have time for this week our thanks go to elizabeth lowry and samuel graydon and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns